it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Monday, April 11th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome into the Guy Benson Show in a new broadcast week. Very happy to have you all here. Thank you for tuning in 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Every weekday, those three hours, that's when we're live. If you can't listen live between 3 and 6, we have a podcast that is on demand and free of charge every day. GuyBensonShow.com, that's our homepage. All of our program needs and features are right there. GuyBensonShow.com. You can also, for the podcast, go to FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Programming note. I'll be joining Kennedy tonight, my dear friend, in the 7 p.m. hour on Fox Business Network, joining her panel this evening. Some other TV duties coming up later in the week that we will fill you in on in due course. But that's my uh, TV for the evening with Kennedy. On the radio side, here this afternoon, the guest lineup is as follows. Howie Kurtz, host of Media Buzz. He'll be here later on this hour. Britt Hume. Senior political analyst at Fox News in our next hour. And in our final hour, we will check in with our colleague Alex Hogan, who is on the ground in Lviv, Ukraine. We'll get a report from her. Plus, just to give you a sense of a few other topics we're going to cover later on in the program. Number one, we are still having a big, angry debate over what's happening in schools and potential instruction on gender and sexual matters for young kids. People have been sending me a clip of Pete Buttigieg on The View. I'll respond to Secretary Buttigieg, and I have some other thoughts on that general topic as well. So we will unpack those in the next hour. And also in our final hour, some updates on COVID and restrictions. And some of the restrictions are coming back. A major city announcing today the mask mandate is back. The White House openly saying we might extend the airplane mask mandate even further. Meanwhile, there's a new study out ranking all 50 states in terms of outcomes over the course of the pandemic on the economy, on schools, and on mortality, COVID mortality. What were the top 10 states who did best combined, and what were the bottom 10 states that did worst combined. They're almost exactly the opposite of what the media would tell you was like, you know, the good people versus the bad people, the pro-science versus the anti-science people, the responsible versus the reckless. Just take those narratives in the media and flip them. And those are the outcomes. We will delve into that and more coming up later on today's show. But we begin today on a subject that I don't want to call off the beaten path a little bit. It's something that we have been indeed beating the drum on a little bit on this show over the course of recent weeks, and I want to make sure that we continue focusing on it because this prospective nuclear deal with Iran that the Biden administration is negotiating with the death to America 
regime that represents the number one state sponsor of terrorism in the world. That negotiation is happening via the Russians. So President Biden says Putin's a war criminal who can't stay in power until he kind of walked that back. And the Russian troops are committing war crimes, and we're going to send more weapons over there and impose even more sanctions. They're a pariah state, but we kind of need the war criminals diplomats to talk to the Iranians on our behalf so we can work out an arrangement where the Iranians get hundreds of billions of dollars worth of sanctions relief, and the Russians get billions of dollars worth of related business around the nuclear program in Iran. We want to enrich both the Russians and the Iranians. And in exchange, we get basically nothing. And Iran would get their effectively internationally blessed nuclear program. And because the Iranians won't talk directly to us, they hate us so much, we're using Putin's people to do the negotiating for us. And the lead negotiator, I mentioned this last week, is this Russian Kremlin diplomat who's given interviews boasting about how amazing the deal would be for Iran, how much they get out of it, how they get so much more than anyone could have ever expected, while also being clearly quite pleased about the way the Russians would make out and also throwing in some shout-outs and some thanks and kudos to China while he's at it. That guy has been tweeting a bunch of lies about the Russian war crimes in Ukraine. That's Biden's man in Vienna negotiating supposedly on our behalf with the Iranians for this nuclear deal. It, it is actually mind-blowing. So on Fox News Sunday yesterday, Dana Perino was in the anchor chair yesterday, and one of her featured guests was Jen Psaki, who is the White House press secretary for now and apparently soon to be an MSNBC commentator. So the Iran deal question came up. Dana asked the obvious question, how can the Biden administration continue to rely on the Russians to engage in these negotiations? And here's the first part of that back and forth in cut 30. Can Russia continue to be at the table for these Iran negotiations? Well, Dana, here's how we look at it. And you know this from your many past experiences. Diplomacy, foreign affairs, it's complicated. Um, and this is an example of that. We believe, and I think the, most of the global community believes, that preventing Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon is in our national interest and our global interest. The president is only going to agree to a deal if it is a good deal. But we have been uh, dealing with the experiment of President Trump pulling out of the deal. And what we've seen is a lack of visibility. Iran has made great progress in being able to move towards acquiring a nuclear weapon. That's not in our interest. Russia has been a member of the P5 plus one. They have been an implementing, played an implementation role. That's what we're talking about and what's been under discussion in these negotiations. We don't know that we will come to an agreement, though. It's ongoing and we're still considering it. Just quickly, the good news here is it appears that the talks have stalled again. They were full speed ahead. It seemed like a deal was imminent, and I was very concerned about that. By the way, I'm not alone. Basically, every Republican in Congress is against it, and a bunch of Democrats are too. Because by all accounts, and we've heard some leaks, I'll remind you that three members of Biden's own U.S. delegation quit in protest based on the scope of the capitulation, the scope of what the U.S. was giving away to Iran and Russia, frankly, via Russia. You had Biden's own team splintering over how much we were giving away. 
but it seemed like it was full speed ahead. Then all of a sudden, the Russians threw in some last-minute demands, and the whole thing is like a grenade went off. But then it seemed like they patched that back up, and we were getting close to seeing something on this front again. And then it appears that the Iranians have cold feet on a few different things. We'll get to that in a second. So for now, it is again pause, and I think every day that a terrible deal is not struck with Iran is good. Because Saki said there Biden wouldn't agree to a bad deal. Yes, he would. Biden is very eager for a bad deal. The last deal under Obama, very bad. This one, reportedly, even worse. Shorter and weaker than the last one. Now, Saki said there that preventing Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon is in our national interest, and I agree 100% with her on that point. If this Iran deal under discussion, this accord, would actually prevent Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons, I think you could make a strong case that you could justify some of these other things, like going through the Russians and sanctions relief and some of the other very unpalatable elements of this would-be arrangement. Because if the ultimate outcome was, with some teeth, Iran never gets a nuclear weapon and they get prevented from moving forward and achieving that goal of theirs, then, on balance, I think it's worth it. The problem is, all the unpalatable stuff is still in there, and at the end of the road, at the conclusion of all of this, Iran gets their nuclear state anyway. They get, like, slightly delayed. And the restrictions sunset and expire, and then they're a threshold nuclear state. That was the fundamental flaw under the Obama deal. And it is even more urgent of a fundamental flaw under what is reported to be in the Biden era deal. There was an analysis from the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy which went through the various Biden claims from Team Biden on these issues and kind of debunked them one by one. Here's an important quote from that piece. Even if the, if the Islamic Republic, meaning Iran, complied with every provision of the deal being negotiated in Vienna, it would emerge in less than a decade with an industrial-sized nuclear enrichment program and minimal breakout time meaning the time that you break out into having a nuclear weapon. It would be reduced down to virtually zero. So even if we give all of our concessions, and there's a bunch of them in there, not just money, a ton of concessions, delisting terrorists from terror lists and a bunch of other stuff, just massive, shocking giveaways. And in return, they agree to a couple temporary restrictions, and they could comply 100% with all of them. They're not exactly the compliance type. They lie, they cheat, they steal, they enable terrorism, they do all sorts of stuff. They violate the spirit of agreements. They sometimes violate the letter, certainly, of agreements. But let's say they totally adhere to all of it. In a matter of just a few years, they would have an entire large-scale nuclear program with virtually zero breakout time left. Quote, in exchange for these temporary and deficient restrictions on the nuclear program, Iran will receive extensive sanctions relief. And we know they've admitted, even the Obama team used to admit, that the sanctions relief, we just like shovel billions of dollars over to them 
and even Team Obama has admitted they take some of that money and they plow it right into terrorism. So that's the status quo right now in these at least now stalled negotiations. And here's something that I find also hopeful from the Fox News Sunday interview yesterday. Listen to Dana Perino's question here in Cut 31. The Iranian parliament this morning said that it would need a written guarantee approved by Congress that the USA will not exit the deal if it is revived. Would President Biden agree to that? And could that even pass this Congress? Well, I think if we get to a point where there is a deal that the president feels is in our national security interests, we will, of course, address and determine what needs to go through Congress. But there are there are some final components that are being negotiated in the deal. We're not quite there yet. There's more than one. Um, and I'm not going to prejudge those or negotiate right. from here at this point. Uh-huh. So what Dana pointed out is that the Iranian parliament said, look, if we're going to get into some sort of new deal with the Biden administration, We don't want to have what happened last time, which is, in this case, Trump was elected. Trump was a critic of the deal. Trump came in, pulled out of the nuclear agreement, and then killed one of their top terrorist generals. So I think Trump's tough line in Iran actually was quite good. And the Iranians were saying, well, hang on, Obama agreed to this stuff, and then all of a sudden there was a new president, and the whole policy blew up. We don't want to have that happen again, and this is the problem if you do it the way that Obama did it and the way that Biden is planning to do it. You can't say this is United States policy now if you have no buy-in from the other party. And control can you know, change hands based on what the American electorate decides. of Congress, including a lot of Democrats, were against the Obama deal. Obama said, ignore that. We're not going to bring this to Congress as a treaty. We're not going to get it officially blessed by Congress. I'm going to unilaterally sign my name to this thing, and it will be American policy until it's not. And there was a new president, and it wasn't anymore. And the Iranian parliament saying, let's not do that. We want guarantees from Congress this time that... The U.S. will stick with this policy. And the problem that Biden has is, yet again, there's bipartisan opposition to what is widely reported to be a terrible deal that might emerge. So if Biden brought this to Congress, he would lose the vote. And so he has to decide, do I just go unilateral like Obama did and ignore Congress, or do I risk suffering an embarrassing loss in Congress The Iranians are the ones saying you have to get something from Congress. Maybe that could be a red line here that makes the whole deal fall apart. That would not be the end of the world. Because the goal has to be ensuring that Iran doesn't get nukes. And you don't do that by giving them a huge amount of money in exchange for virtually no concessions on their part. And ultimately they get their nukes anyway. I did see that the Iranians have also requested that as a show of goodwill. Will the United States engage in some sanctions relief already without any deal in place? You just send us some of that money, please, as a show of your goodwill. That should be laughed at. That should be a very immediate hard no. But it's so weak that you can't rule out Biden actually doing it. This is a very important issue to our national security and to global security. And there are updates, which is why we wanted to lead with it on this Monday on The Guy Benson Show. We are just getting started. So much still to get to. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
The Guy Benson Show. More next. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. We're just talking about Iran in the opening segment. Just to stick in that neighborhood just for a moment, I have two very close friends who are currently on a trip to Israel where things have gotten pretty scary over the last few weeks. Now 14 Israelis have been murdered in recent days by terrorists, Arab Israelis and Palestinian terrorists. And it seems as though the current method of killing that these terrorists have selected is shootings. So they'll bring a gun into a crowded area, people just living their lives, and just start mowing people down until they themselves are neutralized. And it happened once, and it was terrible, then there was another one, then there was another one, and clearly this seems to be some sort of a push. And so far, 14 Israelis have been killed. And I was actually Googling some news reports for the latest on this, and it was amazing how many of the media outlets were framing these stories as the number of Palestinians who have been killed. Like, that's how the San Francisco Chronicle was leading their report on this. Israel, here in the ABC News headline, Israel troops kill fourth Palestinian after alleged firebombing. And they quote the Palestinian Health Ministry about how many Israeli forces have shot and killed Palestinians. And what the Israelis are saying in this particular case with this fourth Palestinian shot over the course of this whole exchange, that he was throwing firebombs. So they shot him. You had other people who were shot dead by Israeli security forces who were in the middle of shooting sprees trying to kill as many Jews as they could. And yet the framing of these stories in some cases is like, well, how many Palestinians have been killed? Then you get like paragraph three or four down. It's like, oh, and 14 Israelis have been murdered by these people. It's a story that's getting very little attention in the global press. But we will give it attention here because we support Israel. And it's not a close call. The Guy Benson Show continues with Howie Kurtz coming up. Stay with us. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcasts always free. And on social media, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. With us now is Howie Kurtz, host of Fox News Channel's Media Buzz every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern. He is also host of the podcast Media buzz meter on twitter he's at howard kurtz and howie welcome back to the show thanks guy 
So I wanted to start with this. I don't know if you followed much of it, but the University of Chicago hosted for a few days last week a summit on disinformation and the threat that disinformation poses to American democracy. And The Atlantic, which is sort of a prestigious left-leaning magazine, was the co-sponsor. David Axelrod, who runs this program at U of C, uh, he was one of the other hosts. He, of course, was the Obama guru. And they had sort of a whole group of people through, many of whom I would say were very much part of the center-left mainstream And they were doing a lot of echo chamber type stuff about disinformation. They were critical of conservatives. They were critical of Fox News. There were one or two, I think, you know, right-leaning people there. But overwhelmingly, this was sort of a left-of-center thing. And the reason I'm asking you about this is because there were some students there who were conservative students at the University of Chicago, some of whom write for a paper, a newspaper at the school, which is decidedly right-leaning. They advertise that they're conservatives. And they were challenging some of the premises of some of these conversations, and they asked some tough questions about, for example, the Hunter Biden laptop story, which was crushed under the excuse that it was Russian disinformation, even though that was not true. That is, we, we've talked about that, how you and I before. Uh, someone brought that up. There were other examples given by challenging questions like the Covington Catholic situation, some stuff having to do with COVID, and you could go down the list of dis or misinformation that was amplified as real by the press or real information that was tamped down as misinformation or disinformation. And some of these right-leaning students challenged some of the panelists on it, and they were just dismissed sort of in a a snarky, snooty way by a lot of the participants. Uh, the, The host The editor-in-chief of The Atlantic scolded these students for being agents of disinformation. And it it almost felt like uh, an encapsulation of almost everything that's wrong with the media right now, including the attacking of young journalists for asking, I think, completely reasonable questions and accusing them of being the ones doing disinformation. I just wonder what your read is on this, because I think there's some insights here into a mentality that has really gripped a lot of the news media. Well, it sounds like they pierced the bubble because, you know, if you were a member of the left-leaning or mainstream or whatever euphemism you want to use, media, um, you know, you tend to hang out with the same people, share the same values. You couldn't stand Donald Trump. You kind of like Joe Biden, but you're disappointed in him. Uh, A lot of it is just sort of built into what you do. So when they talk about disinformation, it's, you know, it's Russian disinformation or it's right-wing media echo chamber. And what was the story that was most accused or most prominent? accused of being, you know, just uh, right-wingers trying to draw up something where there was nothing there. It was the Hunter Biden story. I get asked sometimes, well, why am I still talking about this? I did a segment on Media Buzz yesterday about it. And the thing is, it's still going on. In other words, there have been a couple organizations. Washington Post had a kind of a mealy mouth editorial about it, and Morning Joe had a discussion about it. But they never blamed themselves, just like, well, yeah, I guess now it is kind of a story, because the New York Times and Washington Post have authenticated 18 months after the New York Post authenticated <laughs> the laptop emails. And when Ann Applebaum, you know, who's a widely respected writer for The Atlantic, mostly on foreign policy, was asked at that very conference, uh, what did she think about the Hunter Biden laptop story? She says, I'm just not very interested in it. Now, whether you think it's overplayed or not, we can debate it. 
it, but the president's son is under active federal investigation, could be indicted. I'm not saying he will. And, you know, the mainstream media was a colossal misjudgment, malpractice in my view, to blow off that story at the end of the 2020 campaign. Yes, and to me – and. I also get these criticisms that you that you do as well, apparently, which is whenever I mention it or tweet about it or talk about it on television, I get this sort of scurrying leftists into my social media feeds like, oh, you know, this is beneath you to still be talking about this story. There's war in Ukraine. There's all these other things. And the thing is, Howie, to me, whatever's going to happen with Hunter and this investigation by the DOJ into him, we'll see. Whatever money he was making, I think a lot of that was very shady. Do I think his father knew nothing about any of it the way he's claimed and never had conversations? No, I think he's lying about that. Do I think that Joe Biden may have benefited financially, personally from some of this stuff? I think that there's some evidence that that might be true, and I'd like to know more about it. Is it the most important story in the world? I don't think it is, except to your last point. The fact that you had this constellation of power from intelligence agency alumni to the Democratic Party and especially the Biden campaign at the time to the mainstream news media to big tech all colluding together to crush the story, not as not interesting, Howie, not as not really that important in the scheme of things, but as active falsehoods being perpetrated by the Russian government as disinformation to try to tip the election in the other direction. That, to me, is why this is a huge story. It was the actions of those people who all worked in concert to make sure that it didn't get treated like a real news story, even though it was back then, in order to achieve an electoral goal. That is a very significant story to me. And I'm sorry, I don't think after all of that happening, anyone on the left has any standing to come to someone like you or to someone like me and say, how dare you talk about this story because it's old news. They, they killed the story in the cradle at the time to win an election, and now they're trying to play the old news game, and it's always not that important. Just like the goalposts aren't even in the stadium anymore, Howie. Twitter especially, you know, not only wouldn't let people share story uh, information from the original New York Post story, but wouldn't even let you share it in a private message to somebody else. That's wild. And, and it's getting talked about now because actually belatedly getting in the game, the New York Times and Washington Post have advanced the story somewhat. And uh, the old news thing, you know, look, I agree. I'm not sure that if it had come out more broadly, it would have changed the election. And I spent most of my time covering Ukraine. And when I'm not covering that, I'm covering other stuff. There are a lot more important stories, but as a media story, a media failure, a media scandal, a media misjudgment, this is right up there. Yep. I mean, and so is the whole. I mean, it's amazing. I would love to have taken just an analysis, probably someone's done it, of all the people on stage at the disinformation conference and see how many of them were credulous believers in the Russia allegation, you know, in the the Steele dossier and Russia Gate. I mean, that was another mammoth mistake by the media and you just go down the list of you know credulously in many cases believing you know the crazy gang rape stuff about brett kavanaugh the pile on that kid from covington catholic this there's a pattern here howie and i just think for one element of the political spectrum to be way i mean up in the stratosphere on their high horse you can barely even reach them in that rarefied air where they truly believe that they are the guardians against misinformation and disinformation in society 
And when some pesky, you know, 19-year-old undergrads get up and say, well, how about these six counterexamples? They get treated as part of the problem by these people making their pronouncements on high, even though each of the examples cited are perfectly fair, salient examples. I I just think it, it goes to a mentality of lack of accountability and just a a total sort of contempt for anyone who disagrees. And that is a far cry from separating fact from fiction or misinformation from real information. That's an ideological project and a very smug one at that. I'll give you the last word on this. Um, I'm going to totally agree with everything you just said. And the the thing that frustrates me most as somebody who covers the media is simply that when there are screw-ups, whether it's the Russia investigation, whether it's just a mistake that was made in the haste on deadline, whatever, um, there's such a lack of introspection. It's just like we're moving on. We don't have to apologize. We're the media. You don't really understand how hard it is to do this job. And a little bit more self-reflection to try to maybe minimize the problem the next time would be a really good thing. Yeah, no, they all stampede to the next one together. If it yep. suits their ideological interest, there's just a, a deep, deep arrogance, I think is the word. Now, one more issue on media bias, Howie, that I want to ask you about Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. This is something that I've noticed, and you and I talk in various ways about permutations and iterations of media bias. It is my thesis, you can agree or disagree, that social issues tend to be cultural social issues, areas where journalists especially struggle to have any semblance of impartiality. They can maybe kind of play both sides and ask questions on foreign policy or on economic issues, tax cuts or what have you. But if it's LGBT stuff, if it's abortion, if it's guns, they, they really are just committed lefty activist partisans. And they don't really hide it or apologize for it, and they are just steeped in a culture in these newsrooms where there's almost no dissenting opinion at all. Like some pro-life evangelical working at the New York Times, if he or she exists, probably hiding like under his or her desk when these issues come up. And the example recently being you've got, and I, I actually called it out on Twitter, CNN did a report last week about a new abortion restrictive law in Oklahoma, and I'm a pro-lifer. It's not the law that I would have written myself in Oklahoma, but they did this whole segment on it, and the reporter doing the doing the package was based in Denver and doing the hit from Denver, which is where, in Colorado, the governor had just signed a, a very radical abortion bill, but on the other side of the issue. And I just found it highly, in my mind, illustrative of the problem that you had this reporter based in Colorado barely mentioning the Colorado law and then focusing instead all of this whole look at this look at this draconian thing that's happening in Oklahoma and it's part of a pattern of restriction and whatever and you get the sense clearly where the CNN person's coming down this is a correspondent not a talking head commentator like me seen the same type of coverage on MSNBC and some other places and when I brought this up the reporter actually came back at me on Twitter and said well we were talking about the Oklahoma law and and some of the uh, the patterns there and I did briefly mention the Colorado law which is simply protecting women's right to make reproductive health decisions which is just like a, a press release from an from an abortion advocacy group and I just wonder how we is there anything that can be it's hard I think to deny that this stuff happens is there anything that can be done 
by people within the news media who still care about trust and credibility to try to balance this stuff out without going to like explicit, I don't know, ideological you know, hiring practices and quotas or something like that, because it just seems like the problem has gotten so bad. I don't know how they start to claw back. Yeah, I mean, this is just sort of got worse during the Trump years. Everything he tried to do was horrible, and everything Democrats tried to do was try to save democracy, and democracy dies in darkness and all that. I mean, the, the business about social issues is absolutely true. I don't think every journalist is an activist, as you said, but I do think there are lots of blind spots. Everybody, everybody they know agrees and so forth. Uh, you know, I just think look, when I have strong feelings, when I'm functioning as a reporter, as I sometimes do for a special report, and I have strong feelings about an issue, I push myself harder to make the strongest case I can for the other side so people can see both. But if you basically believe there's only one side, whether it has to do with Twitter or Hunter or Donald Trump or Biden or whomever, um, then it, it affects your framing, the headlines, the anecdotes you pick, uh, the statistics well, and you Well, not only that, Howie, and you've seen this, there are a bunch of left-wing activists who spend a lot of their time criticizing the mainstream media, not the way that I do, they criticize them from the left, saying they give far too much credence to conservative viewpoints, and they engage in dangerous both sidesism where you know they shouldn't, where there is a right and a wrong side, and they should not give as much ink or airtime to conservatives. And a lot of those media folks look around and kind of those are their friends and allies who are mad at them. So there's there's a lot of cross pressure there too, to make the reporting as one-sided as possible for democracy and truth, of course. Yeah, you get whacked on Twitter, which I thought maybe Elon Musk was going to do something about, and maybe he will. But, of course, now he's not joining the board of Twitter, even though he's the largest stockholder, which might mean he wants to take it over or might mean he's just being Elon Musk. Yeah, so it's a perfect way to end on this topic that I wanted to cover with you. Initially, he came out like, oh, boom, here's a couple billion I'm going to drop. I now own a little more than 9% of this company. Hello, Twitter. And then the CEO announced he'll be joining the board. You had a bunch of rending of garments and gnashing of teeth, and all these lefties out in San Francisco were like, oh, no, what's going to happen with Elon? And then they announced what today, it might have been late yesterday, after all, he won't be joining the board. And there is some of that speculation that you just alluded to, Howie. Could this be, I guess there's limits, like a cap on how much board members are allowed to own of the company Musk may have said, no, I want I want to actually take even bigger bites. I'm not going to play by those rules. I'm not going to, you know, refrain from publicly criticizing Twitter, which I might have to do if I'm on the board. It seems like at least my reading of this is that he is not joining the board, not because they're rejecting him, but because he feels like he might be able to achieve more change, not shackled to the board. Two possibilities. One is he really does want to take it over. The second possibility is this kind of what you say, which is he was just on fire this weekend saying, is Twitter dying? He also tweeted that the uh, the San Francisco headquarters returned to a homeless shelter because nobody shows up there anyway. He also said maybe we should get rid of the ads, which happens to be Twitter's main form of revenue. So obviously if he's part he's not part of management but if you're on the board you maybe feel a little bit more constrained and he's just decided what the hell i'm going to say whatever i want and i'm going to put the pressure uh from the outside i'm the biggest shareholder i'm the world's richest guy and uh i'm kind of erratic so this frees me up 
to use Twitter against Twitter, and I think it's going to be an amazing story uh, to watch because a lot of people on the right were hoping that he would have enough influence to reinstate Donald Trump uh, and to lift some of the restrictions on speech, which liberals see as, uh, you know, containing uh, hate speech and misinformation. But misinformation, as you and I know, uh-huh. often we come lies full circle. the beholder. Yeah, we've come right back to the issue of misinformation, and that's the perfect way to end the segment because we're up on a break. Howie Kurtz is host of Media Buzz every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern. His Twitter feed, at Howard Kurtz. His podcast is Media Buzz Meter. Howie, always appreciate it. Talk soon. Thanks, Guy. And we'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. As we continue on the Guy Benson Show, you may recall, if you're a regular listener, that from time to time, I like to follow foreign politics a little bit. And I have relatives in Australia, so I keep an eye on Australian elections, and they have their new election coming up next month. They call elections like, boom, it's a short campaign and it's done. So by the end of May, there could be a new Australian government. The conservatives are in charge, although they've had a really tough time with COVID. And a lot of anger at them. So there might be a throw-the-bums-out mentality, regardless of whether Labor would have been worse, the the left-wing party. The Labor leader, the opposition leader on the left, Anthony Albanese, had a tough moment yesterday, though. This got some attention. Cut 33. What's the national unemployment rate? National unemployment rate at the moment is, uh, I think it's Uh, 5.4. Sorry, I'm not sure what it is. He sticks his tongue out. Whoops, I don't know. The unemployment rate? I don't know. He said, I just made a mistake. Not a great moment there on the party of the people's behalf. That'll be a dogfight down under. And that's a slip by the opposition leaders. So, you know, the conservatives are going to try to exploit it. Another hour coming up. Britt Hume is next on The Guy Benson Show. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show it's our middle hour here on the guy benson show monday edition thank you for tuning in every weekday 3 to 6 p.m eastern time or on demand around the clock for free on our podcast at guy benson show Catch me on Kennedy tonight. I'm on the panel. That's in the 7 p.m. hour on Fox Business Network. So set your DVRs or please do tune in. And a Fox News alert to begin this hour. The Dow tumbling 412 points today, closing at 34,309. And you have to wonder if some of the sell-off may have had something to do with the White House indicating and sort of preparing Americans for a very bad inflation number That's expected to drop tomorrow. With us now is Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News Channel. Britt, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you, Guy. Glad to do this. Well, you know, if the White House is saying it's going to be bad, uh, it's probably going to be pretty ugly tomorrow, yes? I would think, and, you know, even at the current levels, even if it doesn't, you know, even if it stays at current levels of inflation, it is so serious and has sprung up seemingly so quickly over the past months that it completely obliterates in terms of people's perceptions 
you know, all the news about the economy, which, you know, normally in under normal circumstances would really help the administration politically. For example, you know, jobs jobs are being created, the economy is bouncing back from the from the COVID period and so on, and, and uh, normally a president would get credit for that. But when people's wage gains and so on are being eaten up by inflation, it's very hard to get people to think that things are good. Yeah, I mean, and I guess the number is going to be particularly ugly that's announced, you know, for March. And what they're pre-spinning it as is, uh, you know, Putin. This is on Putin. This is the price hike from him. And, look, I, I have no doubt that that's one of the factors at play here. But I think passing the buck is not going to work out politically. And I also was seeing headlines just today, Britt, of, you know, the White House still trying to figure out how they might be able to keep Build Back Better alive, uh, you know, coming at it yet again from a different angle. I mean, $5 trillion of new spending. They still are kind of addicted to this idea in an age of rampant inflation. I think Americans kind of look at all this and say, you know what, that this is not the direction we need to be headed in. Well, I think it's, it illustrates the fact that while this may be Joe Biden's administration, this is Bernie Sanders' party. And remember, you know, that Biden was was chosen, really, sort of in desperation by Democrats, afraid that Sanders was going to run off of the nomination because his agenda, as far left as it is, is kind of where the heart of the party is. And, you know, the Biden people are, are mindful of that. And they've always been hesitant to get too far away from from the things that Sanders wanted to do. And this kind of stuff, this is this is the kind of stuff Sanders wanted to do. Uh, this kind of spending and so on. So it's still, to a great extent, Bernie Sanders' party. Although you look at some of these numbers, Britt, and the polling, I mean, just dreadful for the White House. CBS News poll out yesterday, they asked for approval ratings for the president on multiple issues. He's underwater 39 to 61 on crime. He's underwater 38 to 62 on immigration, and that's going to get worse in the coming weeks. He's underwater on the economy, 37 to 63. He's underwater on inflation, 31 to 69. ABC News had their own poll. The numbers were very similar, especially on the economy and inflation. People are very, very unhappy with the status quo. They are unhappy with the president. One party is in charge. And in that same ABC News poll, Britt, they asked that all important, and I think gets more and more important as Election Day grows closer. We're still seven months out. But they asked that important question about enthusiasm, and there's a 20-point enthusiasm gap between Republicans and Democrat base voters in terms of you know high levels of excitement to vote. It's a majority of Republicans and just barely over a third of Democrats. You add some of these numbers all together, and it's hard to envision anything other than something of a red wave, just not sure how tall the wave gets. I think that's right, Guy. I don't think there's any doubt this is going to be I – mean, I think the House is almost certainly going to go uh, Republican, and perhaps the Senate as well, although the map there is a little bit less promising uh, than, than the situation in the House. So, I mean, I think that's how, where things are headed. What could, what could make things difficult for Republicans if in the Senate um, uh, the primaries produce a crop of unelectable nominees? Right. This has happened to the Republicans before. I know it's something that worries Mitch McConnell and others uh, that that could happen again, and it's not impossible.
Yep, Todd Aiken, Sharon Angle, Christine O'Donnell. There's just a few names that you start rattling off when you look at the last, you know, decade and a half of Republican Senate misses. And there are some names right now that I think very much are in that same vein. I mean, Eric Greitens out of Missouri, if, if they somehow nominate that guy with everything that's happened and all the huge amounts of bags, I mean, he's got like 18 pounds of luggage surrounding him, and he's at least within shouting distance of getting the nomination in Missouri. That could be a tough fight. And I want to actually ask you about this one in Pennsylvania, Brick, because I know you spend some of your time in Pennsylvania these days. Uh, President Trump made this announcement over the weekend that he was endorsing Dr. Oz for U.S. Senate in that race. And I have seen, at least in my view, a much more forceful pushback from a lot of Trump loyalists on that endorsement than almost anything I can recall seeing in terms of his own supporters really revolting against a decision made or, in this case, an endorsement by the former president going with Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. Uh, What do you make of that? Because we're starting to see even, you know, today over the last couple of days, there's a lot of discontent out there. I think there is, and I think it, it illustrates something that, that, that is worth keeping an eye on. And is I think that Trump's influence in the party is waning. It's now, look, it remains very large. He will be a factor. His endorsements, as this, the fact that this is such a story illustrates, is, are, is still a fact. His endorsements are still a factor. But you know, there's that poll number, that poll that you've seen I'm sh- many times that they've not many times, which has been asked in in recent periods about. Uh, asked of Republicans that they consider themselves to be more supporters of Donald Trump or, or of the Republican Party. And for a number of years, while he was president in particular, uh, people answered strongly uh, that they would consider themselves more supporters of Trump. But that's that's flipped now. The majorities consider themselves more supporters of the party than, than they do of Trump. So you, you, know, you apply that thought to the situation in Pennsylvania where you've got a potentially unelectable, somewhat exotic candidate in Mehmet Oz, and party professionals up there saying, oh, no, don't give us this guy. Right? Don't, whatever you don't do this, this is, this, this is not our strongest candidate. Um, Trump's endorsement notwithstanding. So I think that tells you something. It tells you something about the situation in Pennsylvania, and it tells you something about some growing independence from Trump within the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked uh, last week a bit about the Georgia situation where Trump's been really flogging the governor there, Brian Kemp, now for month after month after month. And in poll after poll, Kemp continues to lead the Trump-selected challenger in David Perdue. And if, if Kemp's able to you know, win the nomination there, that's already a significant blow to uh, sort of a fixation of Trump's. And I guess, look, it's hard to get inside his thought process. And I I tend to believe he wants to run for president again in 24, and I wouldn't bet against him running. But you do wonder if he starts to get the sense that some of that influence is slipping away from him, might that play into his calculus saying, you know, if this might end up being a dogfight where I'm not guaranteed to win, is, is this how I want to necessarily risk uh, you know, going out potentially? It might be way too early to start thinking about that stuff, but your point, I think, is at least well taken where it's not just sort of you know, a, a lock, take it to the bank. If Trump endorses someone in a primary, they're the overwhelming frontrunner. It's not really the case anymore, even in some states that are quite you know, Trump-friendly, at least within the GOP electorate. He's got to at least pay 
some attention and, and have some notice to that shifting dynamic. You'd think. I think that's right. And I think it's also the case that that uh, a lot of Republican professionals around the country, although they're wary of Trump and well aware of the fact that he still has a considerable following within the party, do not think that the party can again win with him. And that, and nor do they think, or nor do, at least they fear that if he is seen as still the mega influence within the party, that they can they can win the election even in that circumstance. So I think it's a very open question whether he will run and whether if he does run, he will be the dominant figure that we've you know, come to expect. Yeah, I think those, I mean, those days may, in fact, be over. It, it is entirely possible that they might be over. I would still maybe slightly hedge my bets and, and guess that he would run. And, hell, Brett, I mean, if, if the midterms are wiped out, inflation continues to be a problem and a recession arrives and there's increased chatter about a recession – you know, anyone might be able to win on the Republican side in 2024. Maybe not, but it could be a very, very bad environment for the Democrats still, you know, two years from now, depending on how certain things shake out. And if that's the case, I don't think you could write anyone off, including Trump, although the counterpoint would be, wouldn't you want someone who could maybe win big if it was a bad year for the Democrats? Is Trump capable of that, or does he mobilize a ton of marginally attached voters and moderate voters who you know, come out of their houses and crawl over glass to vote against him? Uh, we'll see. And those are the types of arguments that people can have about him in the years to come. I think what most Republicans, you talk about like the professional class, what they'll say now is let's not talk about that. Let's not focus on that. Let's only look at what's directly in front of us, which is November. First things first, but for reasons that we've just discussed, you know, there's some 2024 tentacle reaching in to 2022, which is why I asked you the question. I want to shift completely to Ukraine and Russia and the war over there. I have to say, Britt, when I woke up, maybe it was Saturday morning, whenever it was, I woke up to images on my phone and my Twitter feed of the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom literally walking the streets of Kiev with Zelensky and chatting with people, I found it to be extremely impressive and inspiring. Whatever you think of Boris, and he can sort of come off as silly sometimes or what have you, that show of loyalty and force going into that country in the middle of that war, sitting down with the two flags in the office and then literally out there walking the streets, I thought it was pretty damn impressive. I wonder how it struck you. It struck me much the same way. I, mean, I thought, yeah, this is probably a photo op, but a very powerful photo op indeed. And, of course, you can't help but raise the question, well, if the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom can walk the streets of Kiev, wh- where is our president? Where, where is his solidarity? Now, Boris Johnson, by doing that, whatever his words said, the gesture said, he wants Ukraine to win this conflict, to win the war, to drive the Russian forces out of Ukraine, and that I think remains something less than the full you know, that's something less than the full-blooded endorsement of that has, has has come from the United States government. You know, John Kirby said the other day, "We want the Ukrainians to win." You don't hear, but you don't exactly quite hear that from the State Department. You don't hear it from the president. 
you know, I think that the, the thinking in the Biden administration is, look, you know, we want to help the, the Ukrainians hold these people off. We want the, the, the initial uh, gain, uh, goals of the invasion to fail. That is the complete takeover of Ukraine. We want that. But, but boy, you know, what we really think needs to happen here is we don't want a cornered Vladimir Putin losing, uh, losing his nuclear arsenal on the world or even, even some tactical nuclear weapons. We don't want to go there. We don't want to risk World War III. And so what we want is, a, is what we want is a settlement on decent terms for Ukraine, but not victory. And yeah, I mean, very. You know, and Biden went near Ukraine, not into Ukraine, and obviously a very different approach from Boris Johnson this past weekend. Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News, our guest here on the show. Britt, always enjoy it. Thank you. My pleasure, guy. Thank you. We'll be right back after this with a hot-button cultural topic I want to delve into next. Back here on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Very glad to have you here. So I've had a lot of people sending me notes about this, texting me about this, and we've sort of touched on the issue on and off here, but I guess it's time for more discussion about sexual orientation, gender identity instruction in schools, particularly elementary schools, and some of the blowback, the pushback that some of these schools are getting and the efforts in various states to curb or bar that kind of instruction in class. And, of course, a lot of it was focused on Florida. People were freaking out about Florida, as they always do on everything. And we've dealt with that law Pretty extensively on this show, including in my interview with Governor DeSantis, which I thought was a respectful and I've said before, substantive exchange on that particular issue. Now, Secretary Pete Buttigieg in the Biden administration, who is gay, married to a man, he was asked about the Florida law on The View late last week. And I finally got around to watching the back and forth in its entirety over the weekend And I decided to write on the issue, not really necessarily as a response to Buttigieg. I don't think I even mentioned him in my piece at townhall.com today. But this is the kind of conversation that is surrounding these issues, I think, within a certain bubble, whereas a lot of other people are very much outside the bubble and not just conservatives. Listen to Cut 29. This was The View last week. Your husband, Chasten, is a teacher. And he's been a vocal critic of what's going on in my state of Florida when the, with the so-called don't say gay law now, um, which he says will kill kids. Do you agree? And, you know, as a, as a politician, because this, this strikes you as, you know, your husband is a teacher. Yeah. You are uh, obviously LGBTQ yourself, and you are now a parent. Yeah. So how do you feel? About yeah, he, he's right. And, and I think every law ought to be judged for the effect it's going to have on real people in real life. And I, I get the political reasons why they're doing this. By the way, some of those political reasons, is they don't have a plan on anything else, right? I mean, they, they, they don't have a plan on dealing with inflation or, or, or dealing with, <laughs> with gas prices. Okay, so let's unpack that real quick. The question comes from Ana Navarro, who is a liberal activist, and she says, quoting Buttigieg's husband, that the Florida law will, quote, kill kids. And Pete says, yes, he's right. This goes back to a monologue that I offered on this show last week and a piece that I also wrote about our discourse at townhall.com last week. 
when this is how we debate issues? Oh, it's going to kill kids. I don't think we're getting very far. I don't think we're persuading very many people one way or the other. This is why a lot of the right-wing rhetoric about this being a law to stop groomers, I disagree with that framing. I think grooming is a very specific and repugnant phenomenon that should not be broadly misinterpreted or over-applied to apply to anyone who might be opposed to these types of laws in Florida or elsewhere. But it's hard to really take seriously people expressing deep umbrage at the groomer term being abused when they turn around and without a shred of doubt in their mind say, oh, yes, but the other side wants to kill children on these issues. They're going to kill kids. And Buttigieg basically endorses that form of demagoguery. I have a lot more to say on all of this. We'll continue next. It's The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back. I'm Guy Benson. We were just talking about the segment on The View last week with Pete Buttigieg on some of these parents' rights issues, LGBT issues. And I have a few more things to say about that interview specifically. Then I want to broaden it out a little bit as well. So co-host Ana Navarro, we played this clip in the last segment, also said something that's just like a slight pet peeve of mine. She says... You are LGBTQ yourself, talking to Pete, and not to speak on his behalf, but he's actually not LGBTQ, he's G. I understand that the community, there's some solidarity there, there's a spectrum of sexuality and those types of identities, but he can say he's part of that community, but he's not L, or to my knowledge, B or T. Q, I think, is very open-ended. He's G, he's gay. That's just like a small rhetorical thing. And he says, yes, this is going to affect real people, and I agree that it's going to kill kids. And then notice the very quick pivot away where he says, and the reason that they're doing this type of thing and going after these issues is because they don't have a plan on inflation or gas prices, which I find to be kind of a strange way to answer that question. He's like, well, yeah, it'll kill kids. But they're doing it because they don't have a plan on this other stuff. Uh, First of all, the Republicans are not in charge, Mr. Secretary. The Democrats, your party, are in charge of everything. The policies being pursued by this country are emanating from the Democratic Party. Democratic president, Democrats control the House, Democrats control the Senate. The agenda is yours. The idea that Ron DeSantis is just trying to ignore inflation or gas prices by moving on to some other issue. And it's always like, oh, where did this culture war come from? Where did this arise from? How did this start happening? I want to address that in a second. I think that people often looking around, pointing fingers about culture wars, often ignore their own escalations in the culture wars, and then they treat any response, any reaction, anyone noticing as an assault or an attack on them, which I think is an interesting trick. But I guarantee you, 
Ron DeSantis and other Republican governors actually do have some ideas about inflation and gas prices. They can't do much about them as governors of individual states. But I would say, broadly speaking, maybe Pete doesn't really talk to very many Republicans or conservatives all that often. But I can probably explain the overall GOP plan to help not solve, but mitigate inflation and bad gas prices in roughly one or two sentences. Stop spending trillions of dollars on enormous, wasteful government adventures and produce more domestic energy because we have it here. That's it. That might be a little oversimplified, but that kind of gets to the heart of it. So I don't think anyone is using the issues of gender indoctrination or whatever you want to call it of young children as an excuse not to talk about inflation or gas prices. I think Republicans would be very happy to talk about almost nothing but inflation for the next seven months. And if the argument is they have no plan, uh, it seems like the Biden administration, the Democrats do have a plan that is spend trillions more. They still want build back better. Biden says he would still sign that law five trillion dollars in new spending. And they are resisting domestic energy production. And they're dragging up oil companies for these phony baloney hearings on Capitol Hill like, oh, they're they're the real problem here. Big oil. Where they try to have it both ways saying, oh, no, we're we're for drilling. We've approved. They have these very technically parsed stats. We've approved more drilling permits last year than Trump did in his final year or like whatever the exact number is but then they are also very much doubling down on and planting their flag on the idea that we have to get rid of fossil fuels and that we shouldn't do more drilling and more extraction on american land in american territories so that was pete Buttigieg's answer on the view and what's interesting is the woman who was asking that question in the soundbite Anna Navarro she also recently tweeted and I mentioned this on the show in all caps repeated but five times critical race theory is not taught to children critical race theory is not taught to children and just repeated it's like a chant and this debate over these issues is actually starting to remind me of the debate quote-unquote over CRT or CRT adjacent racialist curricula which is you have people on the left arguing that it doesn't exist. Oh, no, critical race theory is this abstruse form of pedagogy that is only taught at the advanced graduate school level, like in law schools. It's not happening in K-12, through and anyone telling you otherwise is a liar and probably a racist. Like, this is sort of their argument. And then you point to example after example after example of exactly this kind of stuff being very much included in K-12 through education. We've played the clip of the superintendent in Detroit. We've played the clip of the Detroit school superintendent bragging publicly, boasting that critical race theory is embedded and infused into all of their disciplines in their curriculum in Detroit. You can cite one lesson plan after another, not just random classrooms where an individual teacher might be going rogue, but district-wide plans, guidelines on you know statewide curriculum guidance and that sort of thing, there is an abundance of examples of this. 
In fact, I saw Jason Rance, our friend, had a piece on this just over the weekend. The latest example of critical race theory. In that case, that example coming out of Bellevue, Washington, at a high school there, very much within the K-12 through realm. And you can present these examples saying you can deny it, you can say all these people are conspiracy theorists and liars, but here's the proof. And it's not just a few obscure examples, it's just one after another after another. And then the response you get is either they ignore it completely and keep chanting, CRT isn't taught in schools or whatever, or acknowledge the examples and they say, oh, but see, that's actually good. That's affirmatively good. We should be doing this CRT stuff in schools. So they'll just like on a dime flip from it's not happening to, oh, well, I guess it is happening, but that's a good thing. And that's what we're seeing, I think, on the sexual orientation, gender identity stuff in schools as well. Now, I have laid out my concerns about the Florida law. I support elements of it. I do not support other elements of it, and I went back and forth with DeSantis about that stuff. And he actually assuaged a few of my concerns, not so much on one of the other ones. You can go back and listen to that interview if you want to. There are now additional states putting out their own versions of this kind of law, and in some of the cases, I think demonstrably it's worse than anything close to what we saw in Florida. Like, for example, Louisiana is barring any teacher, even up through high school, of making any mention of his or her sexual orientation, like, even in passing. Which I believe would also apply to, like, straight teachers mentioning, like, let's say you've got your Spanish teacher, Senora Smith, and Senora Smith mentions her husband just briefly, like, oh, I was with my husband this weekend and our kids. That would be illegal. Back in elementary school, I don't remember my teachers really talking very much about their families, their spouses, certainly not their sexual orientation or anything like that. But in high school, absolutely, you were aware of teachers, spouses, or they have kids and that kind of thing. That's not weird. So I think that provision in the bill in Louisiana is, like, it goes farther than any sort of don't say gay slogan. to be like, don't say anything. Like, don't tell... Anything about your life whatsoever, if a student that you trust and they trust you comes to have a private conversation to unburden himself because he's struggling with his identity, you're not allowed to say anything about, like, I think that that is overreach, significant overreach. It's a bad idea. The problem that opponents of a bill in Louisiana are going to have is that Their brethren, the activist class, along with the media and the Democrats, they all took their first big prominent shot at this thing in Florida. And they lost, and they failed badly in the realm of public opinion. I mean, like poll after poll now shows strong support for at least K through 3 young kids not teaching this kind of stuff in those classrooms to those children. And by misdirecting the conversation... And choosing, like, catchphrases like don't say gay that I think are inaccurate. And carrying on with a bunch of misleading histrionics. And then people read the controversial, quote-unquote, element of the bill. They're like, oh, yeah, I support that. They blew it in Florida. 
in some significant aspects. And that's going to reverberate, I think. I have a few more things to say on this. Let's take a break. I'll finish the thought right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back on The Guy Benson Show, and we're talking about these gender issues and instruction in schools for young kids. Now, why do I tie this into the CRT example? I think the same kind of denialism and gaslighting applies here. You can say, if you want to be an honest progressive, you can be out there saying, we should be teaching critical race theory to our kids for these reasons, and we should be telling first graders about sexual orientation and gender identity. What you can't do, honestly, is claim that the things aren't happening when they are. So FoxNews.com had this story last week where the next academic year, 2022-2023, New Jersey state guidelines on sexual education and other issues include explicitly gender identity instruction for elementary school students. And in the story, it says one school district in New Jersey distributed sample lesson plans indicating to first graders could be taught that they have maybe boy parts but feel like a girl. That lesson plan was called Purple, Pink, and Blue. This is for first graders to tackle gender identity and gender role stereotypes and saying you might feel like you're a boy even if you have body parts that some people might tell you are girls. This is for first graders, like six-year-olds here. That's New Jersey. So I tweeted about that. I then had a reader send me a document, a letter sent to parents in a school district in Massachusetts, outlining the gender identity curriculum that is being proposed in that district, again, in Massachusetts. And you go through it, and it starts in kindergarten, even preschool, and then it goes up through fourth and fifth grade. So, for example, the third grade lesson is called When Aiden Became a Brother. And they call this, quote, culturally responsive classroom instruction on gender expression and identity. No opt-outs, apparently. This is for elementary schoolers. Now, you can say that's good. We should be doing this with six-year-olds. I think you're going to get clobbered if that becomes a political issue. But at least make your case. Don't gaslight and pretend like it's not happening until you go all the way to the last minute and the gaslighting runs out of operative usefulness. And then you say, oh, wait, never mind. It's a good thing. Deal with it. So to pretend that the Florida law just came out of nowhere and other laws in that vein just cropped up out of the blue, I think is not accurate. It is a response to something. Pendulums swing back and forth. And one way you can create a pendulum swing on these issues is by sandbagging a bunch of people who probably support LGBT rights in a lot of ways. One of the ways that LGBT activists were very successful over time was arguing, our love doesn't affect you, live and let live, let's just be fair, let's have equality. And a lot of Americans said, yeah, you know what, that sounds good. And there's been progress. And you had people, opponents, Arguing and sometimes fear-mongering, oh, all they want is equality. The next thing they're going to do is start indoctrinating kids and making it mandatory for this stuff in schools. And a lot of people say, whoa, hang on, that's, that's a bridge too far. That's not going to happen. 
that's a scare tactic. Let's just take a breath and have a rational conversation. You are going to sow a lot of distrust and trigger that kind of pendulum swing back if people start to feel like, oh, you got what you wanted, and now the slippery slope that you denied is actually very much here, very quickly. And then you're lied to about it, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, you better fall in line. This is the new reality. Deal with it or else. That's not going to build lasting bonds of trust and mutual respect. And, of course, those things involve a two-way street. There's still a lot of bigotry out there. There's still a lot of intolerance. I face it. Others face it every day. But I think this victimhood, oh, why is the LGBT community suddenly being attacked for no reason? And why are kids at the forefront of the argument? It's because this is a battle that some people on the other side of this have picked deliberately. And then when they find out that people oppose it and want to stop some of this stuff, it's like, wait, what, what's happening here? Why are you attacking me? And it feels disingenuous. Last bit here, Governor Murphy in New Jersey, a Democrat, there has now been enough controversy around this New Jersey curriculum guidelines that I just mentioned that he, I guess, felt like he had to address it. So here's what he said earlier, cut 27. I think there's there's a uh, some sort of sense that parents have no say. And I would just say emphatically, parents deserve absolutely to have a say in this sort of stuff, along with all other interested parties, but probably none more interested than parents. Number two, I don't like the fact that that some are using this um, as an opportunity to score political points and to further divide us. Sorry, divide us versus them. Yeah. Okay. so he's like parents need to have a say emphatically. I think he's trying to learn some of the lessons from Terry McAuliffe. He also had a scare himself last year in November. Phil Murphy did. And there are some cynical people out there just using this to score points. They may not care about the issue, but there's also a hell of a lot of normal people and parents who are genuinely concerned about this stuff. They're not trying to score any points. They just want their kids to learn how to read and do, like, addition and subtraction in second grade and not some of this other stuff. And when they raise those concerns, they shouldn't just be shouted down as a bunch of paranoid bigots who are making things up. Oh, they're just trying to divide us. What about the people who are pushing this stuff on first graders? Is that divisive or is only the pushback divisive? I think that's part of the frustration here. And again, my big takeaway on this, like CRT, they tell you it's not happening at all. And then when you show them that it's happening... They either ignore you or they say, actually, it's good. That is not the sign of a good faith debate. And this entire discussion does feel rife with bad faith. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Don't go anywhere.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show, our final hour of the program today and every day. Thank you so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast, free of charge, on demand, seven days a week, including Bonus Benson on the weekends. That's just like something we like to plug. Usually I plug it on Friday. I'm plugging it today on Monday. How about that? GuyBensonShow.com. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is crisp and refreshing and delicious. And they sponsor our happy hour. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where they're sold near you. They're expanding. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Well, I want to open this hour with a few thoughts on COVID and COVID restrictions And because we mentioned Finland, the Finnish long drink is where our sponsor is from, there's actually a new study. How's this for a transition? This is a segue, ladies and gentlemen. Out of Finland on school mask mandates. And what happened in Finland was they did not require masks on kids in schools for a long period of time under the age of 10. So young kids masks in schools and like many places in Europe they had schools open basically throughout the pandemic and they didn't make that mistake harming their kids the way so many kids were harmed here in the United States especially in blue Democrat union controlled areas then you had mask requirements for high schoolers like 13 and up so late middle school age through high school masks were required in Finland then there was a mask optional range age 10 to age 12. So think early middle school. Schools in Finland could decide for themselves whether or not to require masks. So this created a natural experiment, basically. You can focus on that age group because all the younger kids weren't wearing masks, all the older kids were. So to test the question of efficacy and whether mask wearing in schools help prevent the spread of COVID-19, that 10 to 12 range is useful because you can compare the schools who went with mask requirements voluntarily and those that did not. And here's the result of the study. Quote, use of face masks did not impact COVID-19 incidents among 10 to 12-year-olds in Finland. And I see our colleague, Dr. Marty McCary, at Fox News of Johns Hopkins, he tweeted about this. A few other doctors delved into the numbers, and the discovery was, and again, this is not huge news to people who've been paying attention. If you've been following this stuff, and we've talked about it ad nauseum on this show, there is a mountain of evidence that points in the direction that mask mandates for kids in the schools is, at best, useless, and at worst, harmful. And here's another widespread study, like broad-based study out of Finland, where you had almost this perfect natural experiment set up by the national policies. They could focus their attention on this age range, and they found no statistical difference, no impact on transmission. 
Now, why am I revisiting this issue? Because we are starting to see the restrictionists call for the restoration of mask mandates again. Last week, we mentioned Georgetown University here in D.C. They put their mandate back in, indoor mask mandate for their students. So a bunch of like 19 and 20-year-olds, young, healthy people who are also required to be fully vaccinated and in most cases boosted. These are some of the safest people you can imagine when it comes to COVID. And the masks are back on for the Georgetown kids. American University in D.C., they've jumped on board as well. I saw some schools in, there was one in New York City that I read about. They're bringing back the mask mandate. The city of Philadelphia has reimposed an even stricter mask mandate now. The idea that they're done with us, that they're done sort of harassing us with these so-called mitigation strategies is naive. This is why I think we have to keep fighting and keep focusing on actual evidence. Hence, my decision to highlight and bring to you these numbers out of Finland. Now, what's interesting is I think that they are risking doing even more damage to their own political standing if they decide to try to toggle back into restrictions. The Wall Street Journal had a lengthy piece over the weekend where they profiled a number of people in New Jersey, generally a bunch of Democrats, like lifelong Democratic voters who nevertheless have been moving Republican or even voting Republican last year and are thinking about it again this year because of their residual anger over school closures, for example, being disillusioned and saying, all right, I might agree with the Democrats on issues A, B, C, and D, but the well-being of my own kid, where they can be in school, not locked out of school, not forced to wear a mask for some reason, that is now my number one issue. These are Democrats who have become single-issue voters against unscientific COVID regulations and restrictions, and that has made them, at least for now, temporarily, swing votes, if not Republicans. That was a very interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal, and so is this from the Wall Street Journal editorial board reporting on a study. It's a working paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research. N-B-E-R. And the editors write, this study deserves wide attention. The authors are University of Chicago economist Casey Mulligan, Stephen Moore, and Phil Kirpin, who's sort of like a conservative policy wonk. We quote him from time to time on this show. I tweet his stuff on my Twitter feed, at Guy P. Benson. So that's the group. And what they did was they dug comprehensively into the data to compare COVID outcomes in all 50 states plus D.C. based on three variables, and I'm quoting here from the editorial. The economy, so the health of the economy in each state during the course of the pandemic, education, and then mortality. It's a revealing study that belies much of the conventional medical and media wisdom during the pandemic, especially in its first year when severe lockdowns were described as the best and the only moral policy. So they have a table where they have, based on these metrics, the top 10 performing states who did best when you combine the three metrics and the bottom 10 states in the country. And just to clarify again, you've got economic performance, that's one, 
education is number two, and that's measured, by the way, by lost days in school, school closure days. And then finally, COVID mortality, and what they did was, and I think this is smart, COVID mortality adjusted for a state's population age and the prevalence of things like obesity and diabetes. So these are leading comorbidities. When you think about COVID deaths, the older you are, the more danger you're in. And if you have certain comorbidities, prominent ones being if you're obese or you have diabetes, those were also significant factors. So they adjusted for those things. Age adjusted, age and risk adjusted COVID mortality. That's the the third metric. And I think that's important, for example, if you're going to compare, let's say, Florida and California. Governor Ron DeSantis made this point on our show a few weeks ago. California has the second youngest state in the country. Florida has one of the oldest populations in the country. And so to just look straight up at their mortality rate based on one state having a much higher risk profile simply by virtue of the age of the people living there, that's not really a reflection on policy necessarily. That's just nature. So if you adjust for those factors, you get a better and more clear picture, and that is what this study did. So let me just read to you the top 10 performing states, starting with number 10, is Idaho, then Arkansas, then Maine, New Hampshire, Florida, number 6, South Dakota, Montana, Vermont, Nebraska, and the number one performer based on this data is Utah. The bottom 10, so like, you know, 41 through 50, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Nevada, Maryland, Illinois, California, New Mexico, New York, Washington, D.C., and dead last, New Jersey. The Wall Street Journal editorial says this, the top 10 in the rankings are smaller states with the notable exception of Florida, which ranks sixth. Recall how the Sunshine State's decision to open itself relatively soon, after the first lockdowns, was derided as cruel and destructive. Governor Ron DeSantis was called Governor Death Sentence. The study ranks Florida 28th in mortality right in the middle of the pack, and about the same as California, which ranks 27th. So they are just neck and neck, virtually identical on mortality, Florida and California, despite California's far more stringent lockdowns and school closures. So they're basically tied middle of the pack on COVID mortality, but Florida ranks third for the least education lost, and 13th overall in economic performance. So Florida's in the middle of the pack on COVID mortality, but well above average, if not elite, on education and economic performance. California, by contrast, where their governor believes the rules don't apply to him, first of all, but he's so much better than DeSantis in these horrible red states, California ranked 47th overall. 40th on the economy, and dead last, 50th on in-person schooling. And that's how California winds up in the bottom five states, along with New Jersey, New York. D.C. is not a state, but it's on the list. And why Florida's in the top ten, charting at number six, based on these numbers. So I find that all very interesting and instructive, and once again illustrative of this reality 
that the smartest people and often the angriest people and the people demanding that we listen to the experts and the science and all of that, they actually worship at the altar of their conception of capital S science, not actual data or outcomes. And as we continue to grapple with what they're going to keep doing, I think that people who believe that we cannot make the same mistakes over and over again, we have to pound away and flog the data. Now, here's another example. This is going to be cut 35. This was earlier. This is a White House official, one of their, I think their new big science advisor, talking about whether or not the White House is planning to extend yet again this requirement for everyone to wear masks in airports and on airplanes. It's supposed to expire in just about a week. The 18th of uh, April is the deadline. But could that get extended again for reasons that are beyond me? Here's the answer from the White House in Cut 35. Does that mean that extending the mask mandate in public transportation is a live option? It's on the table? Yeah, I, I look. This is a CDC decision, uh, and uh, I think it is absolutely on the table. And the, and Dr. Walensky is going to make uh, her decision based on on the framework that the CDC scientists create, and and we'll make a decision uh, collectively based on that. So it's still very much on the table. So place your bets now. Is this ridiculous mandate going to continue or not? We'll find out soon enough based on the decision of the CDC and Dr. Walensky. Now, meanwhile, the Washington Post had this headline over the weekend. The elite D.C. social scene sees a rash of COVID cases, but parties on. Talking about how a bunch of people, I guess, got COVID at the gridiron dinner and then Pelosi had it and she was kissing Biden. But that wasn't a close contact. We were ridiculing that point last week. But what a perfect headline from the Post. The elite D.C. social scene sees a rash of COVID cases, but parties on. And by the way, I endorse that. I endorse the partying on. We should be living our lives as normal. We have the vaccines. We have other treatments. We have a bunch of natural immunity. We shouldn't crash everything to some screeching halt anytime there's an outbreak of cases. That is unreasonable. But the people most likely to have been pushing exactly that kind of, in my view, wrong mindset are a lot of the elite D.C. social scene people who I guess have decided for themselves, doesn't matter, we're going to keep partying. And I would say, you know, rock on, good for you, except these are the same folks, this is the same class that is still requiring, in far too many cases, children to wear masks, even toddlers, in daycare, in preschool, in kindergarten, and then certainly requiring all of us, for no reason, to keep wearing masks on airplanes. So if you have to, uh, like, fly across the country to go see some relatives or something, and you've got to bring your three-year-old with you on the flight, coast to coast, five and a half hours, whatever it's going to be, by order of the federal government, that three-year-old, by God, better have his mask on the whole time or else. Meanwhile, the elite D.C. social scene sees a rash of COVID cases, but parties on. wonder if that might tick people off yet again especially if they extend this policy on airplanes and in airports and trains and that sort of thing yet again. Where's the science for that? Quick break. We'll be right back. 
We'll check in on Shanghai, China. What a freaky situation it is over there as soon as we come back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. We had a lot of credulous people saying, you know, say what you will about China. At least they've controlled COVID. And they were attempting this, I think, totally quixotic, zero COVID approach. And I think it's important to point out, they lie about everything. Their numbers should not be trusted. They unleashed the pandemic on the world and covered up how it started. I mean, <laughs> to to take anything that that government says seriously on this subject, I think at this point, like, what on earth would have to be wrong with you to take any of it at face value? But there were folks saying, well, look, they're zero COVID Strict approach seems to have worked. Well, not anymore. They've imposed a very strict lockdown, like a shockingly strict lockdown in Shanghai, which is a massive city. There are more people living in Shanghai than live in the state of Florida. It is huge. And they're not allowed to leave their homes. They're not allowed to leave. And they've got drones flying around, ordering people around. They've got soldiers and you know, police all over the streets. They're delivering these meager rations to people. They've been stuck in their houses and their apartments now day after day after day. And people filmed this very chilling, dystopian scenario over the weekend at night where people went out to their windows in their apartment buildings and just wailed and screamed in agony. Cut 34. It is beyond, beyond creepy. And that's the way that authoritarian government is trying to deal with a significant outbreak in a country that still does not have very good vaccines and a ton of old people who aren't vaccinated. We should not be looking to China for guidance on any of this. I I shouldn't have to say it, but I guess it needs to be said. And those videos were just really disturbing. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. We will check in with a report from on the ground in Ukraine. That's next. Stay tuned. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every single day. I'll be on Kennedy tonight, Fox Business Network, in the 7 p.m. hour. Hope to see you there. GuyBensonShow.com, again, the website here on the radio side. Joining us is Alex Hogan, Fox News foreign correspondent who is in Lviv, Ukraine. And Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, Guy. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Give us just a sense of the mood in that city. It's in the western part of the country, which has been a lot quieter recently. It seems like the Russians are really shifting a lot of their attention now to some potentially final showdown in the eastern portion of Ukraine. But I was seeing reports just last night of air raid sirens going off in Lviv, where you are. Just a stark reminder, there's really no part of Ukraine where this is really over yet. Exactly. That's the sentiment really across the country. Regardless of where you are, there's the constant fear for residents here that everything that they are seeing on a day-to-day basis could shift. So while we haven't seen as many attacks here on the West, we still are seeing at least one attack every week and sirens go off, if not once, multiple times a day. There is a curfew every night and people do need to go to their bomb shelters when those sirens go off. 
So while we haven't seen as many attacks, there have been some pretty drastic strikes, including one on an oil depot. There was a factory that was blown up, and people have been wounded in some of these attacks. So it is constantly on the minds of people who live here. And we visited a small town outside of Lviv today called Strach, and that is basically a pilgrimage site for people all across Ukraine. Now it's been transformed into a refugee hub for people who are fleeing from the east in droves, and they can come here to this monastery and feel some sense of safety. But even there, they realize an attack could happen at any moment. I want to get some color from you about the sentiments among these people based on those conversations that you're having with them, because I saw a poll out yesterday or over the weekend where the Ukrainian people were polled about how they would accept potentially a conclusion to this war. And one of the hypotheticals that was put out there was, would you be willing to accept an end to this war if it involved ceding elements of Ukrainian territory to the Russians? So sort of they get to keep Crimea, they get the Donbass region, Mm -hmm. everything else remains Ukrainian. Would that be okay in your mind if it ended the war? And 82% of respondents in Ukraine said no. They don't want to accept really any concessions to the Russians. They want total victory. They are angry, obviously. Is that the type of thing that you were hearing, sort of a sense of defiance among the Ukrainians? Yeah, well, we've heard Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky say that there will not be an end to this war until all Russian troops have left and Ukraine has its entire territorial integrity. And pretty much across the board, that is exactly what we're hearing from residents also. They have this fierce, burning anger of how just about a month and a half ago, their life seemed very, very normal in contrast to what they're seeing now. And they have no desire whatsoever to make any concessions, especially given everything that we have seen come out in the last week and a half in the north of these regained territories in these horrible images of what has taken place to women and children and men who had stayed behind and tried to hide. There are images of bodies that have been burned, people that have been thrown into ditches while they were still alive, their hands and their feet tied together. Those images will stick with people, I think, regardless if you live here or if you're seeing them around the world. It has created such a deep-seated anger that the official administration is saying this will live on for generations. And that's exactly what we're hearing from people in conversations, that as sad as they are, if anything, sometimes the anger almost outweighs that. And they have no desire to give in until they see a win in their favor as being gaining back everything that they've lost, even though they realize there is so much they will never be able to gain back in terms of the people who have been killed mm-hmm. and the cities that have been completely ruined. If we're looking at Irpin, which is out of the northern part of the, the country near the capital, 50 percent of the buildings that there are leveled. In Mariupol in the east, 90 percent of the buildings have been destroyed. Oh, now awful. the mayor there today is saying that about 10,000 people so far have died, and and that could reach 20,000, he says, in the coming weeks. And then, as you've mentioned, there are the war crimes. And they are shocking and horrifying to the international community, certainly, but certainly, and in particularly and most acutely, to the Ukrainians themselves, because these are their Mm -hmm. loved ones, these are their countrymen, these are their fellow Ukrainians who 
in far too many cases, it seems, were just slaughtered in cold blood while the Russian forces were pulling out of these territories that they had briefly occupied. And it makes you shudder when you think about what's happening currently in the east and the south in areas where the Russians are still, at least for now, in control. I wonder what you're hearing from residents there, Ukrainians there, on the war crimes front. And then there are these widespread reports, I don't know if you've heard much about this, of Ukrainians calling some of their relatives in Russia, talking to them about what's happening in Ukraine, and a lot of people in Russia simply do not believe what's happening because they're getting a steady diet from their state propaganda media saying this is you know just a denazification effort and it's going well for the russians and the bad guy here by far is ukraine and any of these reports about war crimes it's actually the ukrainians that are perpetrating them to try to make the russians look bad it seems like a lot of russians ordinary russians are being force-fed that narrative and they're swallowing it which has to be just sort of mind-bending for people in Ukraine who've been staring the truth in the face here for weeks on end. Yeah, it, it's gut-wrenching. But to get to your first point, so for families right now who are seeing these images coming out, it's horrifying. But for the people who are actually finding out that their loved ones were those people in those images, it is heartbreaking. And police in Bucha right now are going through the documents that they have of who has been killed, and they are having to notify family member after family member mm. that this happened. And in the town of Bordoyanka, which is also outside of the capital, there's this helpless feeling because hundreds of people have been buried under the rubble, and it is a daily chore of sifting through all of that debris, hoping to find the remains of loved ones. And this is just a daily occurrence of what is happening. So as difficult as that is, as you mentioned, the other part of this is that Ukraine and Russia have such deep and long-lasting cultural ties. And for a lot of families, they do have loved ones and relatives on both sides of the border. And I've met a lot of people who live here in Ukraine who have family in Russia. And it's typically younger people who have grandparents in Russia. The grandparents do not believe what their grandchildren are telling them. They don't believe any of the images that they're sending. They don't believe any of the videos. And their response typically is, no, this is propaganda. What you're seeing, those are actors. And there is a, a real belief on the Russian side for some people that what they're seeing coming out of Ukraine are actors. And this is being put on by the Ukrainian government. And this Systemic. has been put on by the West. Yeah, I mean, you sort of maybe naively would assume that in this day and age, in 2022, where the age of the Internet has been ubiquitous now for many years, that type of thing couldn't happen. That type of mass sort of psychosis couldn't be possible anymore, but it very much is. And we're seeing some of those truly extraordinary examples that you're talking about playing out right now. And it's it's hard to believe, and yet... It needs to be believed because that's the reality and some of those other vignettes that you were painting and people waiting to hear if their loved ones have been found beneath the rubble. I think the word unimaginable gets thrown around a lot. I think for many people living in relative comfort and safety in the United States, the degree of loss and the degree of pain emanating out of Ukraine truly is unimaginable. And we can try to be empathetic and highlight it, but 
I think being this far away, it's hard to really feel, but there are folks on the ground bringing us information in real time, including our guest Alex Hogan, Fox News foreign correspondent with us from Lviv, Ukraine today, who is bringing this stuff to life in a way that is difficult to hear, but I think important to hear nonetheless. Alex, we appreciate your work. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Guy. We will take a quick break. We will come back with the home stretch on The Guy Benson Show next. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Home stretch on The Guy Benson Show here on this Monday. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast always free. So I spent some of the weekend doing some spring cleaning. And I actually asked the team here at the show to hold me accountable on Friday because it's a rare weekend these days that I'm actually home without a bunch of stuff on my schedule. So for weeks I've been thinking, you know, the master bedroom in the house here is kind of a mess, and my closet is especially bad. I need to clean this stuff up, and I got some new clothes recently. Let's organize things. I generally like doing that sort of thing. I find it almost calming. It sort of reorders my thinking. That might be overstating it a bit, but I just hadn't had time. And when I was finally done with work at night, we're done with dinner, I'd be like, you know, I don't really want to do that. I want to sit on the couch and just veg for a little bit for the first time all day. So I said on Friday, this weekend, probably Saturday, I'm going to take some time. I've got a block of hours with nothing to do. I'm going to take some of that time and really do a lot of cleaning, especially in the bedroom, bathroom, closet. And I am pleased to report that I partially followed through. <laughs> I did the closet and threw out a bunch of old hangers and decided there was some clothing that I could donate to Goodwill and just reorganize other stuff. And the closet is looking good and under control again. And that is very satisfying. Now, did I kind of lose interest and peter out and decide to go have dinner on the early side? Yes. And did that mean that I did not get to the bathroom and certain elements of the bedroom itself? Yes, it does. So the master suite sanctuary is still a little more chaotic than I would like. Maybe I'll do, like, the bathroom tonight. I'll put some baseball or something on TV, have that sound on in the background, and clean the bathroom. And I can do that after Kennedy, because I'm on Kennedy's show, and that's not that late. And I just don't want to feel sorry for myself. I think it'll be good for me. So I'm going to try to do that, but at least I got the closet done. So I wanted to just mention that because otherwise I know Christine was going to jump on here and call me out because I literally asked them to. It's like this will be accountability. I'm going to tell you guys I'm going to do it, and we can do part of a home stretch about it on Monday. That will be my incentive to actually do the thing. And I did some of the thing. Meanwhile, Christine seems to have spent much of her weekend Watching some, is it a Netflix show, Christine? You were asking me if I'm watching it. I've never even heard of it. What's this thing called? It's a new Netflix show by the same producers that did Love is Blind, and it's called The Ultimatum. I think it's the number one show on Netflix right now. Um, I had a couple of girlfriends tell me to start watching it over the weekend. I kind of... Wait, hang on. Hang on. So Love is Blind, is that the one where they dress up 
as ridiculous animals with a lot of makeup and everything, or and then they go on blind dates and you can't no s- no see this, the person because is... that was that was definitely one of these dating shows and I watched an episode or two of that and it was ridiculous. Love is Blind is a different form of blind dates. You like you, you watched show? it because we talked about it. It's the one where they were like behind walls having their dates. Oh yeah, so they just it's like. The dating game, right, where you can't see the people. You just ask questions. Like contestant number two, what's your idea of a romantic date or whatever? That's love is blind. Right, but then don't forget they got engaged without seeing each other. Yeah, I mean, that. come on. It's just very, very silly. But, okay, so that's love is blind. This is from from the geniuses and the creative minds who brought us love is blind is now – the ultimatum. What's the premise? So the premise is there's six couples, and either the guy or the girl, you know, in the in the relationship has given the other one an ultimatum, saying we've been dating for quite a few years or a year or whatever it may be, and now it's you're going to marry me, you're going to propose, or you're you know you're going to marry me, or we're going to be done. So the six couples get together, and. They have to start – they break up. Every couple has to break up. Then they start dating each other, you know, all intertwined. And then they have to pick Wait, another – stop, 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 stop. They – the couples who have been together for a long time yes. are made to break up, Yes. join the show, and then start dating each other again? No, no, no. They have to date other – one of the other people and the other couples – Oh, boy. Okay. And then after a week of, like, getting to know the other ones, you have to pick another person and go live with them for three weeks. Because it's supposed to show, like, what you may or may not, the qualities you may or may not like in your partner. Maybe you'll have more clarity after living with somebody else. Like, uh, distance makes the heart grow fonder, you know, don't lose sight of what you've got. Correct. That's not happening, though. (laughs) Now these people are kind of falling for each other, and it chaos ensues. So the new couples are supposedly falling in love when the Mm -hmm. point is supposed to be that they realize that they miss their real person. They want to go back and tie the knot and put a ring on it after all the drama or whatever, but instead – Sort of, sort of the opposite is going down. Here. Right. So now they're in the three weeks of with the new person. After this, they go back to the original couple for three weeks. That's where I'm at right now. It is so stupid. Like, if I was on the show watching my husband in the other room on a date, I would lose my mind. Um, this would Yeah, but you're married. That's the point. These other people clearly have but they're, issues. They, some people have been in a relationship for, like, two years. Watching their significant other, well, their ex now, go off on dates and who knows what with another well, person. The, the ex, the ex does feel like a little bit contrived. Like they're not actually oh, totally. exes. They, they technically had to be broken up for the concept of the show to work, but in their minds, it's like still their person. I cannot imagine being like, oh yeah, let me sign up for this. Yes, please put me on this show. This seems. I, I don't. I'm not going to judge. It doesn't seem like the, how can I put this, highest brow offering that Netflix has for the American people. Does that, does that seem fair? Well, let's, I mean, I told you I'm addicted, so that's all you got to know. <laughs> so you're going to, like, binge watch more of this tonight. Like, you're counting down 
like the last 30 seconds here of the show because you want to head back to New Jersey and like mama's got to watch the ultimatum and your Megan. daughter Megan, she's like, I'm hungry for dinner. I was like, figure it out, Megan. Mama's watching the ultimatum. You're nine now. Learn how to use a microwave. <laughs> Grow up, Megan. Oh, boy. Well, I would say I would want to check that out, but I don't. I really don't, honestly. I watched the Elizabeth Holmes Hulu show, The Dropout. That was pretty good. What a weirdo. What a fraud. That's a whole other conversation, honestly. We're up on time. We, we, we can't do this anymore. We can discuss offline if you can pry yourself away, Christine, uh, from the ultimatum. Back here tomorrow for the Guy Benson Show, same time, same place. Joining Kennedy on the TV side tonight, FBN 7 p.m. See you there. Talk to you tomorrow. It's the Guy Benson Show. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.